Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarna Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 75 of the podcast, the topic is the future of learning experience design. Our guest is Joan Toda, CEO and founder of Syntax and Motion and host of the Learning Life podcast. In this conversation, we talk about the future of learning experience design, the shifting focus from the teacher to thinking about learners first, how to teach true skills, how do you get the user to interact, from learning management systems, LMSs, via design thinking to learning experience platforms or LXPs, should everybody have their own online course for personal branding, corporate learning, individual thought leadership and how to navigate the noise, what to consume, what to produce, and how to earn money with content and future directions. John, how are you today? I'm great, John. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's so good to, to be with you here um, to chat about uh, something really, really interesting, uh, the future of learning experience design. Um, I wanted to first, John, just address the, the fact that you know you're a bit of a pioneer in online education and you've already sold one company in, in the field and you're developing another right now. Uh, but your background seems to be uh, very different. You've, you've had some time on Wall Street, but before that, you were waiting tables. And then at some point, you got your screenplay uh, adopted. So you have a quite interesting background that I wanted to <laughs> dig into a little bit. But from the perspective of how on earth did you get to learning experience design from, from that? Yes, yeah, so it's... Um... And it's an interesting story. So, uh, like you said, when I uh, was in college, towards the end of uh, my time in college, which now is over 25 years ago, so it's a, a, it was a different world back then, but I really wanted to be a screenwriter. That's That was my plan. I was going to get out of college, and I just thought, it, you know, you write a script, and the next thing you know, you're, you're at the Oscars. <laughs> and, uh, of course, it was a little more challenging than that, but um, I wrote a number of screenplays, a bunch of them got optioned. I did quite a bit of work in that area for a little while, uh, but nothing really panned out the way I had expected. And my whole family had always been on Wall Street, my dad uh, and my brothers. And so I finally gave in, took my, uh, after a lot of offers from my father, I took one of them, uh, joined him on, um, at, at the time it was Payne Weber, and that eventually became uh, UBS today. But I didn't really want to be a stockbroker. I said, you know, I'd, I'd rather learn computers. And so I got into their training program there. They taught me about land technology and WAN technology. Back then, it was when you had the large mainframes and workstations on everybody's desk. And um, I loved learning all the technology. I'd never really been in that, that field. I was more in the creative side. And I really kind of found this niche of training financial advisors on how to use the technology. Uh, and then fast forward from there, I joined a small consulting firm, partnered up with a, a gentleman in that space. Um, and we had done essentially that, setting up networks for, and this goes back to the late 90s, hmm. setting up networks for financial uh, insurance agencies, independent brokerage firms, and training them on how to use the technology. And then one thing led to another because I wanted to be a screenwriter and producing feature-length films. 
the logical thing to do would be to start creating training videos. <laughs> so um, we did that. We started creating training videos on the on how to use the technology that we were installing, and uh, and that led to the the uh, the start of Edgelands, which was the the company that I co-founded back then, and and got into the the video training space. Hmm. And video training is is interesting in and of itself because. Um, yeah, I mean, video as a medium for for me, I you know, it's grown on me. Um, but video is so many things. What what is it about video that that fascinates you you the most? So and it's interesting question now because I think today we do a lot more in audio production than we do in video. Um, and that's just kind of the way things have gone a little bit for us. But I was. I always wanted to be, you know, I was obsessed with with film and uh, and wanted to be a, a filmmaker back when I was in school. And uh, and then I think what it was at the time that we got started with video training, because if you think about it, we launched uh, Edulence and uh, back in 2002, the very first um, iteration of KnowledgeLink, our platform, which was the video training system, we released in 2004. So it was before... YouTube was mainstream and people just accepted that they could learn through video online. Um, and I think what I loved is just, I was more of a screenwriter. I loved scripting it. And then it was actually a less expensive, easier way of producing e-learning back then because you just had a talking screen on a, on a background. Mm. And, um, and we weren't doing anything hugely innovative with the video format back then. It was just this idea that no one had ever really seen training in video online back then. So it was, it felt great just to be able to innovate in a space like that where everything was CD-ROM based slideshow training. And we were, we were doing it in video. Yeah. I, I, the, the thing with video is like you pointed out, it's so many things. I've recently tried to, to learn it this summer actually, because, you know, one thing is a podcast, but then, you know, the, it'd be great to, to also evolve it into a little bit of a video podcast. But I have realized one thing, which is audio and video are, are quite different things. And uh, I, I think the, the primary has to be audio, no matter how you, turn it even even if you're trying to create professional video you really really have to start with high quality audio that's sort of one thing that i've understood uh, i don't know if you agree with that but uh, but the other thing uh, that i wanted you to, to comment on is you know video has evolved so much so you know i'm just in the beginning of this learning journey with video but somehow these youtubers managed to kind of many of them just chat and 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 really not do very much but it, it's uh, it's the whatever the content they just directly can produce uh that that is so engaging somehow and then others obviously edit and and have all these angles and different cameras and and, and different b-roll and and you know make it very complicated and also very labor intensive so that you know five minutes of video will will take you eight hours of shooting um, well, what's your view on that sort of before we get into kind of the the nitty gritty of this, but is video now kind of going in, in these two directions that both for learning and for entertainment that, you know, sort of it's possible if you have the magic, you can just do it live and, you know, you develop a brand and people love you and you don't have to worry about the quality. And on the other hand, there are these skilled sort of craftsmen that's just pain over every second on the video. 
How do you explain that these two coexist, both in the learning and in the education space? And, and you feel free to disagree with me, but that's sort of kind of my observation of what's happening right now if you're looking at, at the online space for those two subjects, sort of entertainment and, and education. Yeah, I think it's a it's a great question, and and I look at it specifically from the learning, the online education perspective, as opposed from you know just pure entertainment online. Uh, but I think it really depends on the content. You know what you will see today, because there is so much learning that's video based online, that sometimes the content truly lends itself to a higher level production. It requires it. Um, to keep the engagement or to have the learning value that you need, mm -hmm. that production is, is truly valuable. In other cases, the content is just as well delivered by a person speaking to the camera. And the, as you said before, critically important in either format that you have good audio quality, you have good lighting, um, you use the effects where you need them. Some people go a little overboard with all the, the motion graphics and, um, they they almost are just trying to cover up the screen with with motion as much as possible, but if the content doesn't call for it, it's not necessary. And and I think what you'll see today and, and take masterclass for a, a good example for any of your listeners. Obviously, on the consumer side, that might be one of the more notable consumer based learning platforms that that's doing really well. If you watch any of the masterclass sessions, largely it's just a talking head video. Mm. But that talking head is Dustin Hoffman or um, uh, James Patterson or Serena Williams. You know, so when you have such celebrity in your your learning content, just seeing them in person talking to you is the value. And they don't need to do anything special with motion graphics or B-roll or anything like that. But then when you're dealing with traditional learning, that's not maybe the most exciting content and, and you're not drawn to it in that same way. Um, and we did a, a series for a, a client of ours that was um, HR training on sexual harassment and anti-discrimination. And the, the owner of the firm said, I need to cover up the video with at least 70% of the video has to be covered up with some form of motion. Because his feeling was that the content wasn't engaging enough, so they needed it the movement to keep people interested. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I do think it, it tends to, to kind of fit with the content or, or the content requires either more movement, more production, or it can get by with less. Mm. Why don't we jump into uh, kind of the, uh, the specific space that you have uh, innovated in? Because, you know, in the olden days, which I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, these learning management systems, LMSs, they were very structured and and like you, I think, started talking about, they didn't really have a lot to them. Um, but on the other hand, um, they were all we had. T tell us about this evolution, you know, into what now is called learning experience. Like, what is this experience part? How, how does it look different? How does it produce different results? Or, or is it just sort of a natural evolution because we have... You know, what is it that we have learned about the medium, uh, you know, in the e-learning space to, to develop, uh, you know, experience-based platforms? And, and what, what do they really look like? Yeah, so I, I 
think this is one of the more interesting aspects of where we're at now in just the online education space overall, that when we built our platform um, back in 2002, 2003, uh, learning management systems were just getting popular because content had been delivered on on CD-ROMs and DVDs previously. And so that everyone was making this move to bringing content online, delivering in a digital format. And the need then was we need to manage this content. We need it to report somewhere. So we have tracking. We know that people consumed it because now they're outside of a classroom. They're doing it online. And so really when when I speak about kind of the evolution of, of learning uh, management systems, it's not that they're being replaced. You know, the buzzword today is, is LXP, learning experience platforms. Uh, I always say to people, it's not that the LMS is dead or that model is done. It's just a natural evolution that when back then it was really all about the administrator. It was about managing content, making sure that you can control it, deliver it, and report on it. Today, it's so much more advanced that it's really about how do we improve that learner experience? How do we get them to engage more with the content? How do we get them to share and socialize the content? How do we get contributions from different levels? And I think what I've noticed is that I, I think it's a double-edged sword with this whole new uh, brand, this whole new acronym for LXP, because people know what a learning management system is. They, they relate to it. And I, I think it's better to just say that it's grown up. It's time for it to evolve and be something um, that's really more geared about the learner first and foremost, as opposed to the the admin and, and managing the content. But one thing that, that I've noticed, uh, I mean, if you think about, uh, I, I think back on, on my early schooling and, you know, like my teacher would, would sort of throw the random mo- movie into the classroom at like whatever point they felt like it, it was happening. So, uh, you know, even an LMS is an improvement from that. And if you think in the corporate setting, you know, you could sort of have a classroom setting where you're forced to to take this course and then the instructor would say, well, today we're going to watch a video and discuss it. So I, I do see that, the, you know, even a, an LMS is a natural evolution towards or it's an evolution towards a little bit more control with what's being taught when and, you know, has my employee accessed it? And it's almost a necessity, I guess, if you have a multinational corporation and people in different locations that are, are going to be taught something, and and especially if it's mandated, right? I mean, is that how it kind of evolved? Is that what the initial market was? Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, and, and this is interesting, too, as far as how the market's evolved. You know, if you look at the e-learning industry today, it's a... $200 billion global market. Mm-hmm. And when you segment out the platform piece of it, the, the LMS is out there, mm-hmm. it's less than 10% of that. So still today, what the world has spending, the large amount of money they spend is on producing the content, developing custom content libraries, because that's that's a big expense is actually developing the content, licensing the content. The platform side even though it's been around for a while, it's still a smaller piece of the puzzle. It's a less expensive piece of the puzzle in a a lot of cases, but you just can't do it otherwise. You you have to deliver the content. You have to have that structure to know that it's being reported properly. Hmm. Um, People are getting credit for the content that they're looking at. Um, But it's, when you look at the market, if there's a segment in this online education or, or virtual learning marketplace, that's really ripe to, to blow up and, 
and expand, it is the platform side because it's relatively untapped. When you think about what a learning management system does, it's very simple in most cases. Mm-hmm. Upload the content, deliver it to the, the learners, and track that they watched it. There's, you know, every system's got its bells and whistles, but that's essentially all most people want from it. And, and now you're seeing the learners pressing the boundaries and saying, well, I'm used to, you know, learning things on my free time on social media and YouTube and TED and, and wherever else it might be. And so I feel that that's kind of raised the bar on the front end of a learning management system that, that people, the end users feel like, the experience should be better, should be more innovative. It should be smarter than it used to be. I, I, I actually agree with that uh, criticism, but the problem is what do you replace it with? And I guess what you would say is start with this notion that you know an LMS isn't, isn't dead. You can just build and you have to build out the platform. But, but what do you say to people like me who would say, I, I don't really like any learning system. My learning is so you know, it's such an anarchy. When I learn, when I succeed at learning, it's because I didn't know I was learning, right? It's, I'm just discovering something on my own. If someone puts me into a system, sits me down and says, here are your learning objectives, you have to learn it by Monday or learn it in the next hour, that really just kills all the motivation for me. So I guess, you know, if you apply that approach to uh, or that criticism to to a learning management platform, you can understand why these experienced guys put in, you know, gamification and all these kind of artificial rewards into the systems. Because that was going to be my my next question. You know, an LXP, what is it really? Because what I see, you know, superficially is I see a lot of kind of dumb virtual motivations and coins and stuff that doesn't mean anything in real life. Uh, so that clearly works in a true computer game if you're competing against people and, and that has a real value because, I don't know, there, there's a virtual currency there that you believe in that, that has a value in the community. But in a learning context, it's really hard to make these artificial uh, rewards make, make any sense. Well, you know, what's your view there? Yeah, so I, I, I agree with you. I think on both points. One, your style of learning I believe is a lot of what this LXP market is trying to solve for Okay, is that um, it's more of an unstructured learning model that you will learn in the flow of work. You'll learn when, you know, at the point of, uh, of, of need and you want to be able to do the research and contribute to a learning path. And, and that's when people define, you know, a learning experience platform, I think that's so much more to it, but that's one of the main characteristics is that a learner today, and much like yourself, is that you don't want to be structured in this very formulaic path that was set and prescribed to every single person who entered the system um, on this date in the same role as you. It's as if we're all identical and we get the exact same path, the same learning style. And the reality is that's not true. Everybody comes with a different knowledge state. Everybody learns in a different different style, or they they um, they consume knowledge better in one style or another. And so, it's really designed for someone like you who doesn't want that structure, mm. who wants to be able to to take their own journey um, through a learning path. So, I think that it kind of to from your your question too is just what is a learning experience platform? 
that's one of the main characteristics. And and to your other point, I am uh, I won't get on my soapbox today, but for years, um, every anyone who listens to me a lot knows I'm not a fan of gamification inside of a learning platform. I feel like, and I've done a number of talks on this, that real world rewards is why we learn. And we want to know that we're moving forward in our professional development, that we get recognition for that, not inside of a, a platform with a cartoon badge or experience points. That, that works in video games. It works with kids. It works in um, you know, school education in a lot of cases. But when you think about corporate learning, I need to know that I'm moving along my career path, that the learning I'm doing, the time I'm spending on that is getting me further along and meeting the milestones to become the the role I ultimately want to be. And I want to be recognized in the real world. I'd rather be able to drop a, a skill set um, or a skill earned or an endorsement in LinkedIn, which is essentially my online resume, than having a, a cartoon badge inside of my my learning management system. And that's that's kind of where I look at it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So give give us a little sense of what a learning experience platform looks like these days. What are some examples that you see of something that most people would consider a contemporary learning experience platform in the corporate world? So in the corporate world, and and as I mentioned a little bit, pretty much everything I've done in my career in online education has been on the corporate side. You know, there's a a whole different category for, you know, the K through 12 and and higher education. Um, So most of the the platforms and and strategies that I'm familiar with are are corporate based. Um, But yeah, so you would say that one of the biggest players in the space is Cornerstone. For in, a, in the corporate learning space, their LXP um, uh, platform isn't so much a separate platform, it's just an add-on to their LMS. So they're just adding those elements to the to the LMS. Then you have, you know, Docebo is similar to that. They've added the curation capability on top of just standard LMS functionality. Um, that's what you're going to see in the bigger platforms in the space. Then you see some of the ones on the other side that are true learning experience, almost an overlay that you could add to any learning platform. Uh, something like Filtered um, does a really good job of, of curating content. Um, and then um, Thrive does a, a, a really nice job with learning experience. And, and as you said earlier, the, the company eLearning Brothers that, that acquired our platform, they've been really pushing um, knowledge, like the, the technology that, that I designed a long time ago. That always had a very much a learning experience feel to it, but they're pushing pretty far forward on that as far as really in the area of, in their case, it's contributor content. So the idea that any learner can capture content from their phone and add it into the learning path, and that's that's one of the big pieces for a lot of these systems. But, but what you said, though, with LinkedIn is important. So you know, if you're going to have an outcome in in this kind of experiential system, the outcome better be real. I mean, this is something that I I, I really fundamentally believe, and you know, I've worked on action learning and experiential learning in a university setting, and there you're you're dealing. Uh, especially at the MBA level, you're dealing with adults. You're dealing with people who are over, you know, are like almost 30 years old, and 
uh, well, they may not be in corporate setting anymore, but regardless, uh, they, they want to have a true experience and the end result or even their, uh, their intermediate contributions, they want them to count. They want to share them in a real way. They don't want to have assignments, right? You know, they, they, they want to actually, uh, they want to execute something that happens in the real world. How do you integrate the online space with such real world assignments. So one thing is sort of to add something to your LinkedIn resume, but do you know of any other system like this that actually is able to carry out real actions in real life and have them integrated with the online learning path? Yeah, so I would say that is one of the areas, and, and to me, I think it's one of the areas when you look at the future of e-learning, this is one of the things that people will adopt to pretty, it, it'll probably take a little bit longer, but I think it's one of the important pieces for exactly this reason. So I've been exposed to this quite a bit because um, the there's a platform called Trek, which is a learning experience management system. Um, and I didn't even know it existed. It was acquired by um, by this company a few years before they they purchased our company. And so we've merged the technologies together. And it was the first time that I really saw what I feel is the more traditional definition of learning experience management. And what it is, is based on this idea that you can learn lots of things online. You learn skills, but until you apply them in the real, in the real world, until you practice them in the workplace, get feedback from your mentor or your coach, optimize it, and then are able to upload evidence from the real world that you actually accomplished the tasks using that skill set. Until then, it's not a capability. It's not something that can actually be used in the workforce. So I, I love this because Trek has been doing this for a while. But when I look at learning experience platforms, and I did a, t a ton of research on it recently for some of the work that I've been doing, and no one's really looking at it from that perspective. They're thinking of totally about learning experience being an online component. Mm -hmm. And because I, I've been so close to Trek, um, what I was really fascinated by was, well, why wouldn't you just, if you're watching a video or you're watching an e-learning module online, when it completes, rather than doing a quiz, getting a badge, certifying that you watched it, completed it, scored 80 or above, whatever that means, um, you instead now are assigned a task in the real world. Okay, good. You learn this. Now go do this. Check, check, check that you did all these things in the real world. And then you don't just get a badge or a, a completion certificate because you checked it off, but you need that validation, that, that evidence that you can upload some type of artifact that proves that you actually completed it out in the, the workplace. Uh, and, I, and I think that is one of those pieces. I, I love when you can merge the online world with the re real world. I, I always use the example of OnStar. I always thought OnStar was one of the greatest innovations because it's, it's using technology to a certain point, but in that moment of need, it just gets you to a real person with the information they need to help you. And so I kind of like this direction for learning experience platforms. And I don't think enough of them are doing it. They just don't even think of this. They want to replace real world learning. Mm -hmm. And I'd rather see the platform endorse the real world learning and use it for practice, feedback, and really 
really validating that you learned a capability and not just a completion of a of a course. Look, what you're saying is so relevant right now, right? In the midst of COVID and potentially in a world where so many of us are going to have to go on and not just carry on with our work, but we actually have to evolve somehow into better versions of ourselves, potentially still in the real world, but without the option of always going live with people in the, in, the, in the most obvious way, either by traveling or going to the site where something occurs. Um, but can you speak a little bit on um, the importance of, of the teacher and what the, uh, you know, or the instructor in, in, in this kind of learning environment? Because you, uh, you told me earlier that many get very focused on curation, and this is maybe kind of this, this content uh, trap here that, as a teacher or instructor, you're so uh, like, like your client, perhaps, you know, like well, you got to have motion. Like the, people have, have all these preconceived notions about what learning must be. And, you know, uh, it better not be boring. It has to be engaging. And then they start investing so much on the wrong end of things. Uh, yeah. It, I, I don't know. Yeah, I know. It's, it's funny. It's funny you say it too, because I, I always say, and my team always says the, the worst feedback you can get is when someone looks at their their media. They say it just doesn't just doesn't wow me, and that's the only feedback you get. And, you know, I I mean I don't know what you're looking for. It's it's learning content. It's supposed to be effective. Yeah. It's supposed to keep the user watching. It's you know wow factor isn't always a, an effective learning tool. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think I think that's the interesting aspect is, is that what you've probably seen with a lot of learning content now, and I I think. I've been so focused in the video side of this world. And we became known as a video training platform more than an e-learning system. Mm -hmm. And so we always were a little bit outside of this normal, traditional e-learning space. And I think we always just saw it as video being the most effective way to teach, to feel like you, you know, to feel like the instructor was really there, uh, to be a natural extension of a live in-person workshop. We were never saying that you would replace what you did live with the online component. We wanted the online component to be prerequisite training and post-requisite training because I, uh, both me and my partner, when we when we co-founded the company, we started as trainers. And, and one of the big problems we're trying to solve is nothing's more frustrating as a trainer than walking into a, a room, a workshop that's filled with 50 people. And you know that Half that room hasn't looked at any of the material beforehand, and they're the ones who are going to keep stopping and asking questions over and over again. And the other half of the room that really is prepared and ready to learn is not getting a, a good learning experience. And so I always felt that the way to use a learning management system was prerequisite training before you get into a live classroom, then have a really effective live session. And today that's being done through Zoom or through Microsoft Teams or WebEx, what have you but still the same model. On-demand is your prerequisite to make sure everybody has at a similar knowledge state when they sit in a live session, but live learning is always the, the, the most valuable piece of it. It's a matter of kind of eliminating some of that prerequisite and post-requisite reinforcement so that the, the most valuable asset, your subject matter expert, can effectively teach a class with people who are really ready to learn. 
And it's interesting that these two aspects, right? It's the the learners themselves and a group of learners and what the composition is. And then of course the the the, the instructor. Those two factors, you you can try to manipulate those two factors a little bit, but essentially, you know, if you have bad content going in or bad motivation going in, how much can the system fix? I'm thinking about that in in terms of, again, I guess a little bit in this COVID day and age. So universities are worried, right? Because uh, arguably, um, if it is like, uh, as long as you invest in a system, it's really hard to screw it up. Like if that was the case, then every university would suddenly become the same. They're, they're all stuck online. You can't really express your personality as, a, as a, an instructor anymore because you have only those five minutes. You, you don't have all of the capabilities that you would have you know, in, in real life or on campus. And in the corporate world, uh, so just comment on that. I mean, is this completely wrong to think that uh, you know, the, the virtual the full virtual experience just kind of blends everything together. So, you know, would a, a perfect uh, learning experience platform virtually cancel out the differences between a Microsoft and a mom and pop software firm? Like they could actually run a training that had exactly the same components, be equally advanced. And the corollary being, why would you need to work for Microsoft? Because you know you can get the same kind of training, the same certification, and maybe even more challenges in a much smaller, perhaps more easier context. So are we going to evolve into that someday where the learning experience platform itself becomes so good that it doesn't really matter who delivers the learning or even who who receives the learning? You know, you'll learn the same anyway because the platform is just taking you along the way yeah and so i i think you're hitting on an interesting point and i and this is probably right now because this learning experience model is very new for everybody and i think that people all define it a little bit differently and there is a one side of the world that feels like the instructors the learning departments the you know the the training departments at all, all these large corporations can just be artificially eliminated from the model and learners will build their own paths. They'll collect the content from blog posts and websites and YouTube videos, and they'll build these learning paths. And then you've democratized the learning model at a company and you've given a small company that doesn't have the budget to license content, produce content at the scale of, of like a Microsoft, like you're saying, now it's an even playing field is that my learners can build content from any, any, and, and add to a learning path, curating content from everywhere. And, um, and now we've got as good of a training model as anyone. And all we did was leverage free content that was sitting all over the web. Anyway, I kind of sit more on the other side of the fence. I feel like learning is structured for a reason that my clients for my whole career have been training departments, chief learning officers, people whose career and passion is in instructionally designing good content that is effective in its design. And subject matter experts, the, the, the people who have the best knowledge in their head, uh, you know, they, they're not going to be replaced by an artificial intelligence model built into your learning management system. I feel like there's a, 
is a common ground somewhere between the two, is that you need the best knowledge experts, the best subject matter experts, the, the best content that's all over the place. The job of the learning experience platform is to allow me access to a larger, wider net of those experts than might be available in my small company. I don't feel like you're leaving it up to an, an employee to find the content that's going to be best for them and lead themselves through it. The platform is supposed to be a tool for the learning experts to deliver the best content. What should it happen, though, is just make it easier to find more content, more cost-effectively, and bring it into this path. But I get scared, I think much like you, that we're creating a future where you democratize the learning model so much that there's no structure to it at all. And that's dangerous. Well, well that brings me to another question. Um, a lot of what I do uh, has to do at uh, one point or another with interoperability. And in the IT space, that's a massive issue. And in every segment, you sooner or later, you get to this issue, where, whether you're dealing with robotics or you're just dealing with plain old software in some specific setting. What I mean, wouldn't it be nice, right, if there was some way that you could pick up what you learned in one system with one employer and then bring it to the next? Because what it seems to be happening right now, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that all of these systems are their own islands. So if I take a course and I, you know, I've worked at Oracle, so I took a course at Oracle and, you know, some of them were, you know, were just sort of mandated courses, but let's just say the mandatory course, slightly annoying course on, you know, cybersecurity or whatever it is, you know, fundamental stuff that I need to know throughout my professional career. Why wouldn't it be possible for me to take all the pieces that I learned there and then put it into essentially my own repository and, 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 and all the learning and take that with me? It seems like it's such a waste that there are so many, I mean, it's such a waste in any case that there are so many online platforms where you can't bring your content from one place to another. Has there been any work in this field, in, in learning management, to try to create portable pieces of that platform that you actually can bring with you through a lifetime? The way that you actually do on LinkedIn, like you said, you know, the only thing that matters is what I've done and what I can show for. It doesn't really matter where, to me, where I learned it. Of course, it does matter to my employer. Uh, they want to feel like we gave you those skills. But to me, yes. that's irrelevant. Yeah, and so to your point, I think um, the one one company who's, I think, the closest to delivering this is LinkedIn Learning. Right. You know, so Link, this fits with their model perfectly. Um, they would love to create one industry standard uh, and or, you know, across all industries, just a learning standard for soft skills and different different skill sets and integrate it with your LinkedIn profile so that it's very simple for you to add the skill sets that you've earned and take them with you, essentially, like you're saying, from one one job to the next. Whereas with the learning industry outside of that, because they can really think that globally because it's because it, the reach that they have is LinkedIn. If you look at most of their competitors who are just traditional learning management systems, uh, they can't do that. Now, the content that you might create 
can be portable. You know, if I am the customer on one of these big LMS platforms, you everyone's using standards at this point for, for the content. So any content that I have in my LMS today, if I decide to move to some, some other LMS a year from now, two years from now, as a company, I could take the content with me, sometimes transfer over the, the user data. Um, but you're looking at it more from the learner side, I think. And yes. from that perspective, yeah, and from that perspective, I think I think a lot of the a lot of companies like Coursera probably thought they could achieve this, but LinkedIn Learning is. It, it, I think if you look at their model, that's what they'd like. They they would like your your online resume and LinkedIn with all the skill sets that you've earned using their platform to travel with you wherever you go. Mm-hmm. If you look at the uh, the future, the way you you would like to see uh, the next types of applications playing out in uh, you know in in learning management. What what do you see? I mean, if we look five ten years into the future, what what, what do you hope to see? What do you think you will see? So I, I think what you hear everybody talking about right now is artificial intelligence and learning, and I think that that's heavily dependent on a lot of data. And so I think that before it's truly effective, um, that's gonna take time for there to be enough data. Uh, I, I love that idea that you can take an assessment as a learner, establish what your knowledge state is from day one, and then see benchmarks against other peers in, within your industry, You know, even outside of your own company. To me, I think that's that's hugely interesting. Um, but probably a little more out in the future because I don't think there's enough data yet for the systems to be intelligent enough to make the right recommendations today. But I think that's one of the areas I'd like to see. What, what kind of data? You mean data like the systems don't have enough users. So if, if I'm taking my cybersecurity example, you know, any organization, even a large one would have, uh, I don't know, they trained uh, a thousand people one year and then they trained a thousand people the next year and that's not enough data for you? Or you're saying that's such a uh, liminal case and most people would have trained, you know, 10 and 15 people. And they uh, is it the user data or are you talking about the input data for the instructors to uh, to create the actual course? Um, yes, yeah, so what I'm referring to is slightly different. I think there's lots of user data. The user data is not related to real world capabilities or the, the so what, what and it's kind of what we were talking about earlier too is that the purpose of the learning is so that you can learn a skill set that becomes a capability in the workforce something that you can actually use yeah. i think the data that's missing is how do i know that just because the top 10% of people in my role in my industry looked at these five videos why do i know that those five videos are what made them great you have to attach it to real-world experience that proves they actually are better at it than you because they did the training. And I, I think that's the piece that's missing right now. Got it. Are you optimistic that uh, that this space is changing and will change because of COVID? Has, has COVID in, impacted or will it impact the learning space? Everyone says that e-learning will transform and some people... Uh, a little bit like myself, actually realized that there was something wrong with this space. <laughs> like, uh, it, it just wasn't ready for prime time, meaning when everybody is forced to use these kinds of tools, 
we would all start very soon, and I think we are starting to expect something even better. And that's not a criticism of the environment of e-learning per se. It's more saying when this becomes mission critical, there are so many other things that goes into it that, that we just never thought about. I mean, one thing is if learning was just happening an hour a week, what did it matter? I mean, to your point, like, what do you expect? Do you want to be shocked? Like, you want to have a Hollywood movie experience every time you open a, a, a learning platform in the morning? I mean, that's completely unrealistic compared to, uh, you know, the money that went into it. But suddenly when learning is all you have, maybe the expectations yeah. can be different too, or, or what? Or, or, or are we expecting too much of these systems? So, you know, so I think it's, I think it's interesting. What I do say is because I've been in this space for 20 plus years, I have seen more adoption um, of online learning in all its different forms in the last six or seven months than, and at a pace that probably in my experience would have taken five years. And because we didn't have a choice, we, we got forced into this reality. This is the new normal. And I think what you're learning is pretty quickly, the smart technology providers are learning where the deficiencies are more quickly than they would have because we had to replace live training and live one-on-ones and face-to-face meetings and orientation meetings and onboarding new hires. That's all, um, that's all training. That's all learning. And it was not all of it was done online in most cases. I mean, mostly was not online. And, and so a lot of learning happened in the real world in the corporate space that I don't think people appreciated it. They didn't know how much they depended on the real world education that people were getting on the job. But very quickly, you've seen it now. And I think it's opened up almost every platform out there, launched their virtual instructor-led training module in the last few months. So we do a Zoom session. Well, sometimes the Zoom sessions are, are fine. You don't need to track them. But in a lot of cases now, a Zoom session or a WebEx or whatever platform you might use is actually delivering learning content that you need to get credit for. And if you think about these tools, they weren't designed to do that. They're communications tools. And so now I think you're seeing the learning platforms figuring out, okay, we need to integrate more with the live communication tools because that's where learning, you know, live learning is actually happening. Uh, And so I, I think... It's pushed innovation much more quicker than it needed, uh, not not more quicker than it needed, but probably more quicker than people thought they needed it. And now you're seeing that, hey, if we're going to stay in this format for an extended period of time, and I think you're seeing with a lot of companies are realizing that this is a pretty cost-effective way to operate. We don't need large office space. We don't need to be together all the time, but you need to build culture and you need to teach people. And now it can't happen in person all the time. So yeah, I'm pretty optimistic that the platforms are getting better more quickly because there's just a lot, like you said, there's a lot more mission critical emphasis on this now because there isn't another format available. What is the true balance between live and recorded? Uh, I mean, if you think back with your historical sort of perspective, historical meaning 20 years, um, you know, when you learn, oh, is it always better to be live or is there something in the reflective content that you can only achieve by having recorded, which presumably also means a little bit more put together and you can time it better. 
So in other words, what is this? What is the sweet spot between live and recorded and remote and physical? Yeah, I kind of put nowadays, just because of the world we're living in, uh, you know, with COVID and so many companies operating, operating remotely, I kind of put live in the same category. We're, we're forced to do a live, you know, training or face-to-face meeting or a, a feedback session through, you know, one of, one of these tools. So they kind of fill the same need in the learning model. One might be better. I'd always prefer to do those in person, but you know, today that's not an option. And, and just with remote workforces, it's not always an option. But there does need to be a cadence between on-demand delivery and truly live training. And I think it's as much for the learner as it is for the manager. So, so many of these things just create more effort, more work for the manager. How many people can I really coach live how much can we scale that model if I have to be in person with them, whether it's virtual or otherwise, how many people can I really do that for? And now you're seeing that, okay, can we do a certain amount of on-demand content and some content? And I, I do believe this, that some content is more effective on-demand self-paced if it's produced in the right way than it would even be in a live classroom setting. It could be more personalized and, and more effective, but then there's always the place for now I need to apply it. I need to get feedback and that generally needs to be live. I'm so glad you said that because, and this I think applies, you know, your insight here applies to these Zoom meetings and, and meetings as well. Like I've never been a real big fan of meetings, meaning when more than two people uh, are, you know, when you're in a group and you're discussing things, it's just very often just deteriorates into uh kind of a show show and tell or, or, or something where you're not really deciding anything. You're not really getting all the arguments out. You're just, you know, time just flies. And, and I've noticed that at least the first three months of COVID, there was a lot of, it wasn't really training. It wasn't really meetings. All it was, was you're stuck in front of your computer screen and you don't really know why you are, but the, something was scheduled. You feel like you have to be there. Uh, and and nothing happens. Uh, but if it was on demand, you could at least listen to whatever you needed to listen to and then respond. Just the way that email, you know, at least before we started getting all these email overload kind of advertising uh, requests uh, on email. Email used to be this very pure medium for me where, you know, you get the email, you can reflect, respond in your own time, and it's perfect. Now, every medium, I guess, has its own time. How long will this current version of Zoom last, do you think? So what's your prediction? How long will it take until uh, learning management and and truly kind of interactive e-learning experience merges with with Zoom and creates something uh, very different, which does balance all of these aspects? I think the um, the big obstacle for this is that from a technical perspective, the technology platforms that run on demand versus live are so very different. Um, the demands, the style, um, the the requirements that are that are most important. I, my whole career has been on demand learning. I, I, we've never done anything live, and now you see. And and in most cases, what you're looking at is that the on demand providers who really their core competency is the management of the content, 
uh, curating the, the path, getting people to the most appropriate content when they need it most, reporting on it, tracking it, all of that good stuff. Whereas a provider like Zoom, their number one priorities are going to be the quality of the video, the reliability, keeping multiple streams going. How do we manage 100 people in a Zoom call and make it feel like we're really engaging and not just, you know, a huge gallery of, of, of moving thumbnails. So I think I don't see that, I don't see that anyone, and honestly, I don't know that there's any vendor out there who's looking to do both. And I think what you were going to need really for this to all come together is a lot of integration between the Zooms, the WebExes, um, and the, uh, the, go to meetings, the different providers like that. It's more seamless integration between them and the learning management systems. Probably maybe some consolidation of some of these companies be coming together. You know, a Microsoft's probably in a really good position to do this with Microsoft Teams and LinkedIn Learning, where they could start to combine these pieces together. But yeah, I think a, a more seamless transition between on-demand and live is going to be a necessity if we continue down this path for very much longer, which it seems like we probably will. Hmm. I, I wanted to take a slightly different tack. Uh, a lot of us, and by us, I guess for, for now, let me just represent the us with my experience. Um, you know, I'm I'm a teacher and an instructor in many in many cases, and I want to capture the opportunity that COVID and this time in history provides. What is your best advice to people like me who? You know, I have a bunch of content that I want to now put online in the best possible way. I have written books and things, and I now want to put up and transform that into instructional content in some way. I obviously also want to experiment with lots of other formats, and I, you know, obviously I'm, I'm doing a podcast and things. But if you just take this corporate or, or sort of instructional use case right now, but from the individual instructor's point of view, what is the best way to capitalize on this moment? I mean, is it uh, to join sort of, are there online platform that you would recommend for instructors like me, whether we have content or just have subject matter expertise that we want to offer up to the, the market, people like you who create content with us or can plug us in with clients? What is, you know, yeah. So what, what are the options for people like me at this moment? So I, I love this question because over my 20-year, 20-plus-year career doing this, while I built and, and launched online universities for large companies and, and, you know, there's tens of thousands of employees, where my passion has always been has been to work with the subject matter experts directly to help them take, take what was in their head and convert it into a, an online format. It, it was what I did. I was a trainer to begin with. The only reason we built the platform was to take what was in our head and, and deliver it to our customers. And so we've always played more in that side of the space than corporate traditionally, mm -hmm. um, because I believe that the real power of online education and, and all of the tools that have been developed is that for someone like you who has great expertise, you're one of those knowledge experts that should be able to share this with the widest audience possible. That is what this all this technology was designed to do. Back in the day, you would have needed a, 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 a developer and a professional video production studio. Now you can do it on your own and, and for a fraction of the cost. The challenge is always distribution because 
you'd like to think, you know, years ago, everyone said, well, I'll just create my course and throw it up on Udemy. The problem with Udemy is that their model is not to get you more exposure. It's to, get, to build their model. Yes. Right? So, yes. so that's not a good place to exist. A masterclass is a great place to go. Not necessarily for the instructor, though. You know, their model is designed to be very good again for masterclass. Same with Skillshare. So I always say to people that you kind of have to build your own. And now the costs are reasonable enough that building your own existence online, managing it opens the doors to partnerships with all these other people out there. That, that's an interesting advice because, you know, this is the... <laughs> I mean, this is the era of platforms. I, I happen to think that the the era of platforms may may also end, and there something else comes in, and and partly for the reason you just point out that all of these platforms are really very extractive. They they you know if you think about well, let's not you know name and shame, but you know if you just look at a, a platform like a Facebook, it's very clear that for a decade or two, what we've been doing is feeding the beast as opposed to really helping ourselves. It ha it hasn't really made the world a better place, you know, you know, on the grand scale, uh, or, or if it has, it has certainly also done much more for the owners of the platform than than for the contributors, just because the contributor model hasn't really been equitable in a sense that, you know, whatever I contribute on Facebook, I sign my rights away to that content anyway. But so are we then moving into a new day and age where either I have to create my own platform and take that and, and you know, your advice may be good, but isn't there something in between that could emerge where you, platforms start to emerge that are either run by the community in some meaningful way or where the benefit uh, is a little bit more equitably shared. I mean, isn't it possible to think that there's something in between? There, I mean, surely a platform where I give everything away and just I'm just a tiny little element, I'm really just a, 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 a little you know, spike a, a, a little element in, 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 you know, some platform's big plan versus, you know, spending all of this energy building my own platform. Not everybody is going to want to do that. I mean, so your advice may be good, but you're also now cutting off a, a bunch of trainers and, and subject matter experts that are just never going to succeed. They may take your advice. They may indeed build a digital platform and then they get five users. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I would say is there is a, um, I believe, and, and I've worked with some companies over the years that have done this very well. Everybody wants to do it. Um, but I, I call this model, I call them content aggregators. And so for us, we, you know, we always catered to this type of provider for our platform. Um, it's a little bit different. It's probably not as well known in the e-learning space because that's really driven to say, okay, I'm going to be the big provider. I'm going to spend millions of dollars to drive traffic. And I'm going to give you this very small piece of it because getting the traffic into the site is more valuable than your subject matter expertise. Then I think this other model that I've always been a big fan of as this aggregator model is that somebody creates that community like you're talking about that's very vertical. It's specific to one, one industry. They're a big brand name in that industry, but they only have so much content of their own. So they instead reach out to everyone, all the, the thought leaders, the subject matter experts in that one specific space and bring that content into one, 
one location. Because I think to your point, there are people out there. And I think this is a lot of subject matter experts is that I may have great content in my head. I may even want to produce it, but I don't want to do support on a technology platform for thousands of users, even if I could get them. So partnering with somebody who's really looking at the space and saying, hey, my real value is my brand and the reach that I have. And if I could get 50 of the best thought leaders in this vertical to put their content here, we can partner in a perfect perfect model where I deal with supporting, bringing customers in and supporting them on the technology. And I bring in the best of breed knowledge experts. And I, I love that model. I think not enough people are doing it right now. You know, this uh, reminds me of a conversation I was having with someone who uh, I think at the, at the golf course of all things, but someone who works in the uh, educational publishing space, which is another space that is related to what you're doing, right? So these are companies uh, that historically just made textbooks, but then they entered the professional market and then now they're going in digital in a massive way, except they also haven't really figured out their business models. But so so this could be one avenue for, for, for them as well. To what extent have you have you worked with with that side of the business where where you're actually working with either publishers themselves or subject matter experts that have already have produced written content in some form and that, you know, to, to my point earlier, that are trying to convert content between different media. So in my case, I might have a book, I'm looking to turn it into audio, video, courses, what have you. Uh, or you might have something else and you might be interested in turning into a book. You might be a blogger, you might want to turn it into a book. You might be you know, something else, you might want to become an instructor. All of these things seem to blend together. And what I mean, what my limited experience is, if you're going to succeed with a platform, so the, the few people that have succeeded with platform plays as individuals, like a Gary Vaynerchuk or something, right? They started out very small, like he started out with Wine Library TV, and now he's become this big influencer that operates ostensibly across sectors and you know, kind of sells his services to a lot of different brands, builds his own companies. But the only way he was able to do that is that he very, very, very quickly in his evolution, he understood that he had to be um, everywhere, you know, in, in all different media. He had to be very good, you know, both at Twitter and and blogging and and video. He had to to manage and master all kinds of content production. I mean, is that where we are? That, you know, essentially the only success here is if you are willing to master all these things on your own. So I, I think what you're pointing out is um, is pretty interesting. I mean, and Gary Vee does a really good job of, of executing across all those channels. And he would be someone who could very easily launch an aggregate library of content and get the best of the best to give them their content because he knows how to bring in traffic at a very high level. I think that either you are that type of person. Now, he's an interesting um, example because he's actually a content creator who can drive his own traffic, so he doesn't really need anyone else. But in most cases, if you are, and and I love working with thought leaders. I mean, that's, that's what I've done my entire career. I love working with professional speakers, um, coaches, consultants, authors, people who do have this expertise, 
but maybe in a very specific vein. And, and they also are not experts at social media and that they, or they just are not interested in marketing themselves that way. So really it's this idea of how do you pair those two different types of, of individuals or organizations together? The people who are truly talented authors, writers, content creators who need a lot of help in taking what works on the page or works on stage and turning that into an on-demand video that now needs to work when they're not when they're not there to facilitate it. So there's a there's always a process of that. But then now you've got a beautiful library of content that works, but you don't want to spend you know every waking hour posting on social media, running email lists, because it's not also I always say this if you're a writer, in a lot of cases, it's kind of not in your nature to be a self-promoter as much. Some people right. don't want to actually do that as well. So I, I, I think it's a matter of figuring out that fit and, and finding within your network the people who are really driven. And I think it's pretty easy to see nowadays just from looking at your own social media feeds, the people who do a very good job in your network of promoting and self-promoting and then aligning with them and saying, hey, I've worked really hard to develop this perfect library that fills this one need, how do we partner so that you can get me more traffic and we do a rev share model? Rev share models are obviously really big in this in this space. Hmm. I wanted to ask you, what are you up to now and what are you up to next? Yeah, so um, for me, I, you know, I'm doing a couple different things now. So since, you know, we, we sold the software company, uh, back in April, so right in the midst of uh, COVID, and um, I decided that you know we were going to take some time off. Now, I uh, years ago I opened up our production studio, Syntax in Motion, and what we do here is create our original content, uh, and we produce online courses for for our customers and uh, along with our own content. But um, we also do podcast shows. A lot of our clients want to create their own podcast shows, so we help them with that. But after, you know, after we, we sold the, the other company, what it allowed me to do is really focus more on original content. And so we're, you know, launching new, I'm, I'm very passionate about audio, audio, the audio format overall. So as you know, you were on my podcast show, it was a, my 100th episode. So it was a, it was a fun one, a uh, really good episode to catch too. Um, but the other side that we don't, you don't see as much as that we're producing original scripted fiction shows. And I, I love that because I started as a screenwriter and I was one of those screenwriters that got a lot of um, options and activity on my scripts, but I just couldn't, you know, get a deal sold into a, a major Hollywood studio. You fast forward to today and an up and coming writer, there's so, seemingly so many places to get your deal done. But the problem is there's so much more competition today with every influencer and, and, they, and they've lowered the bar of entry so much. So what we really wanted to do was say, okay, can we reach out um, through different schools and, you know, within our region particularly and find up and coming writers and run competitions to select the best scripts um, that could be converted into a short, essentially a, a short story, a, a short story in audio. And then we produce it. We cast it with voice actors, do the the sound design, and then release it on our our podcast channel. Um, so I love that. It's uh, it's kind of fun for me. It's coming full circle that I I know the uh, the challenges of being an unknown writer and trying to get people to produce your content. 
And um, I don't know that I am interested in doing this in video because of the extreme cost to, to produce those. But doing it in audio is, is a, um, a really neat format to help someone who nobody knows about yet get their work noticed um, in, you know, not, a, you know, without us spending a ton of time or money in production uh, and still be able to get some interest in and maybe, you know, open up some opportunities for a writer that people might not have known otherwise. That's exciting. Just a question on my end. So you produce it and it sounds good. H how do you get an audience for a completely new fiction type of content? I mean, how do you even launch a person like that? Is it, is this content just really speak for itself? So uh, we really struggled with that um, because originally, you know, these are three episode stories. So they're short stories because we're trying to produce them pretty quickly. Um, so it's, you know, 15, 20 minute episodes in three of them. So if you launch that as a new podcast show each time, you'd spend an enormous amount of effort to drive traffic to it, to build up an audience, just to have to restart it all over again. Yeah. So we made a strategic decision for us to launch one channel called Station Obscura. And that podcast channel is where we release the stories to. So we can grow the audience. Each writer wants to drive their, uh, you know, more of an audience to it. We also do a rev share model. So the writers get a, a piece of what, um, what we earn on the show, but we keep adding shows to that one channel. So the audience will grow over time and, and we don't have to reinvent the wheel and, and, or rebuild the audience for each individual writer. And when you say earn money on the channel, do you charge for listening to the channel or is it the advertising on the channel? How does it work? Yeah. So a combination, you know, I would say at this stage, it's pretty early for us because we just released the first few shows. So we're not at the point where we're selling advertising or sponsorships, but uh, through merchandising. So merchandise uh, related to the show brand and then contributions. We're selling uh, different uh, membership levels. So if you want to support the, the program, um, and it's kind of cool. I, you know, this is a work in progress too. I'm kind of interested in the different ways you can monetize a podcast show, but what we're doing is basically that Patreon model where you could say, okay, do you want to support the show? And we give them a bunch of, um, items that we think would be really valuable to someone who's that interested in this storytelling format. So you get advance, um, notice on the next show coming, you can see the scripts ahead of the production, uh, you get access to exclusive updates and a director's cut, things like that, that I just know when I was, when I was, you know, screenwriting and I was very much into this, you know, just consuming as much, you know, film content as I could, you know, seeing a script and with the notes from the director where back in the day, if you remember laser discs, they would do the director's cut on there and you could listen to the writer and director yeah. talking through it. I, I love that kind of stuff. And so we're experimenting with that a little bit. We think there's an audience that could be really passionate about the storytelling and supporting the writers. Mm -hmm. uh, and we want the writers to, you know, obviously be able to get some residual money um, if, if people want to support their work in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to let you go, but I have my last question. If people want to learn more about LXPs, uh, you know, experience learning platforms, where, where should they go? Uh, apart from talking to you, which uh, I'll obviously link up, uh, uh, you know, everything that you do. Is there any influencer, any big paper, uh, you know, any actor or um, institution that, you know, caters to this phenomenon? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, there's there's a few, and obviously, I of course, I always like people to, to follow me on on these topics. They too, will, but, they will. Uh, but but um, I believe uh, you know there's an uh, organization in the learning and development space called um, well, there's an event called DevLearn, which is an exceptional. They just finished. They did a two week virtual program, and if you're into virtual reality, instructional design, the creating the actual content. I think this DevLearn event is is one of the best resources, and that's run by the um, the eLearning Guild. So the they're the association. On the other side, ATD um, Association of Training and Development. There's chapters in every you know in every city around the the country. Um, ATD is a great resource resource from that perspective. And then I would say probably the most notable thought leader in this space today that I follow and most people do is a is a gentleman by the name of Josh Burson. Um, and he's got the Josh Burson Academy. He writes about uh, quite a bit now about learning experience and, and learning experience platforms, learning experience design. So yeah, Josh Burson is probably one of the more notable thought leaders in the space. So yeah, I, I think any any one of those sources you can, you can learn quite a bit from. John, uh, I have learned quite a bit from you today, so we'll definitely link up your your work. And I'm I'm so glad that we that we got connected. Thank you so much for teaching me about uh, e-learning and the corporate space. And and I was excited to to chat with you. Thanks. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I love what you're doing with the show, and uh, it was great to be here today. All right, cool. You have just listened to episode 75 of the Futurized podcast with host Trondarne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of learning experience design. Our guest was Joan Toda, CEO and founder of Syntax and Motion and host of the Learning Life podcast. In this conversation, we talked about the future of learning experience design, shifting the focus from the teacher to thinking about learners first. How to teach true skills? How do you get the user to interact? and from learning management systems via design thinking to learning experience platform. And should everybody have their own course for personal branding? My takeaway is that learning experience design is an ever-evolving field which finally is taking off. We need it. Learning should be fun, interactive, engaging, and learning software platforms should be well thought out and easy to use. It's slowly starting to happen. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 73 on the future is social learning, episode 65, which is on the urgency of youth education, or episode 51, which is on the AI for learning, episode 27 on the future of online learning, or episode 22 on the future of engineering education futurized preparing you to deal with disruption.